Hey everyone, welcome back to the Life by Taylor podcast where we learn and grow together. For those of you that have been listening from the very beginning or for anyone who has listened to the first, I think, 15 to 20 podcast episodes, you know that this podcast started as a daily podcast where I read from different spiritual books and different personal development books and broke them down for you guys. When it comes to my creative process, and I hope that I can inspire you to do the same. I really go with the flow of what speaks true to me, what feels right to me. I don't believe in being rigid or too structured or too disciplined when it comes to your creative outlet and how you create and share things with the world. Because of that, when I felt more called to share my personal stories and my personal experiences with you guys without being so attached to needing to read from books and needing to maintain the same structure that this podcast was built on, I allowed myself the freedom to do so. The beauty of when you follow your intuition and you just let it flow through you, it really does guide you and lead you to exactly where you're supposed to be and what you're meant to be doing. And a few people have requested that I go back to reading from books or a few people asked me to do it. And I took it to mind. You know, I I was like, okay, noted. But I let it come to me naturally. And recently, like I said in last week's episode, I was revisiting A New Earth, one of my favorite books, or if not my favorite book, that hopefully you guys know this by now. I love this book so much. I've reread it a few times, and I revisit it in many different moments of life, different parts that I remember are helpful and useful for me. And as I was going through the feeling of negative emotions and a lot of anxiety, I reopened what is probably one of, if not the favorite chapter of mine in A New Earth. This one chapter changed my life so dramatically because in this chapter, which is titled The Pain Body, Eckhart Tolle describes this parasite that lives in our mind, this this entity, this energy form that I imagine to be like a little monster inside of me that he calls the pain body. And he describes how the pain body is one of the biggest sources of human suffering, one of the biggest obstacles to our species evolving and becoming conscious. He explains how the pain body is what causes drama in relationships, what causes us to have really unhealed relationships with the people that we are quote unquote closest to, right? People in our family, people who we love so much. The pain body is the reason why we're addicted to negativity, the reason why we prefer to hear negative things over positive things, the reason why we spiral when we have a negative thought much more than we spiral when we have a positive thought. The reason that if you get 200 positive comments on something that you did and one person says something negative, you will fixate and hyper-focus on that negative comment. So as you can see, the pain body, this one chapter, has so much to offer us, has so much value when we get to understand this part of us. And when we start to see it as a separate part, as a part that's not really us, but within us, this, like he says, parasite, this psychological parasite, it really does create a massive shift in almost every single area of your life. Now, of course, like any good chapter in a book that's teaching you something so deep and so complex, the juiciest and my favorite parts of the chapter come closer to the end. But in order to understand them, we really need to understand some foundational aspects of what the pain body really is, what thoughts are, what emotions are, how emotions are even born. What does that even mean to have an emotion? from a spiritual perspective, of course. And if you listen carefully and you keep this in your awareness after listening to this episode, I promise you that you will see such a huge shift in your life already. I really do want to honor 
how much value there is in this one chapter, and I don't want to cram it all into one episode. So today's episode is going to be on what the pain body feeds on, what the pain body is actually made of at the end of the day, which is thoughts and emotions from Eckhart Tolle's perspective and in the context of the pain body. So I'm going to begin with the best place to start, just the beginning of the chapter of the pain body, and I will stop at certain points to give my interpretation, my commentary. I may not read the entire chapter through, but I will also highlight some of my favorite quotes as I pass through them. So let's begin. Chapter 5 of the incredible book, A New Earth, The Pain Body. The greater part of most people's thinking is involuntary, automatic, and repetitive. It is no more than a kind of mental static and fulfills no real purpose. Strictly speaking, you don't think. Thinking happens to you. The statement, I think, implies volition. It implies that you have a say in the matter, that there is a choice involved on your part. For most people, this is not yet the case. I think is just as false a statement as I digest or I circulate my blood. Digestion happens, circulation happens, thinking happens. The voice in the head has a life of its own. Most people are at the mercy of that voice. They are possessed by thought, by the mind. And since the mind is conditioned by the past, you are then forced to reenact the past again and again. The Eastern term for this is karma. When you are identified with that voice, you don't know this, of course. If you knew it, you would no longer be possessed because you are only truly possessed when you mistake the possessing entity for who you are, that is to say, when you become it. Thinking is no more than a tiny aspect of the totality of consciousness, the totality of who you are. The degree of identification with the mind differs from person to person. Some people enjoy periods of freedom from it, however brief, and the peace, joy, and aliveness they experience in those moments make life worth living. These are also the moments when creativity, love, and compassion arise. Others are constantly trapped in the egoic state. They are alienated from themselves, as well as from others in the world around them. When you look at them, you see the tension in their face, perhaps the furrowed brow or the absent or staring expression in their eyes. Most of their attention is absorbed by thinking, and so they don't really see you, and they are not really listening to you. They are not present in any situation, their attention being either in the past or future, which of course exists only in the mind as thought forms. Or they relate to you through some kind of role they play, and so are not themselves. This is a quote that I highlighted that I loved very much. Most people are alienated from who they are. And some are alienated to such a degree that the way they behave and interact is recognized as phony by almost everyone, except those who are equally phony, equally alienated from who they are. Alienation means you don't feel at ease in any situation, any place, or with any person, not even with yourself. You are always trying to get quote-unquote home, but never feel at home. Some of the greatest writers of the 20th century recognized alienation as the universal dilemma of human existence and probably felt it deeply within themselves so they were able to express it brilliantly in their works. They don't offer a solution. Their contribution is to show us a reflection of the human predicament so that we can see it more clearly. 
and to see one's predicament clearly is the first step to going beyond it. Okay, so let's begin with this beautiful introduction to the chapter. So what is he basically saying here? In short and put simply, is that knowing who you truly are is knowing that you are not the thinking mind. And I think he puts this so brilliantly when he gives the example of the mind, when he describes the mind as just being a function of the body, the same way your body digests food and circulates blood, the way your lungs automatically perform their function and allow you to breathe. Your mind is just performing the natural functions of the mind, which is thinking. But the difference between our digestion system and our respiratory system and our thinking is that most of us are so identified with that function. We think that's us. We think that that is the truth of who we are. That is where we gain results, where we gain clarity, where we gain understanding, where we solve problems. And that is the way our mind tricks us into possessing us. We are possessed by the mind. And understanding that automatically makes you not possessed by the mind. Every moment that you are aware of the fact that you are not your mind, every moment that you're able to look at reality for what it is and create space between you and your thinking mind, you are taking away that power from that possessing entity. So many people are on a quest to understand who they are and they're trying to think their way to understand who they are. And that process leads them nowhere. It leads them to more desperation and more frustration and cycles of disappointment. And if there's one thing that this book really taught me, it's that all of the answers to my biggest questions in life, all of my creative potential and the depths that I'm able to love and experience joy and peace will not come from my mind, will not come from thinking. They will come from being able to tap into the presence of who I truly am, which is the presence beneath my thoughts. One way to know that you are being possessed by the mind is anytime you're thinking about the past or the future. Those concepts only exist in the mind. And the aliveness and the truth of who you are that is beneath those thoughts does not know time, does not exist in the constructs of time. So anytime I'm dwelling on something in the past or thinking about something that happened, anytime that I am worried about something in the future, overthinking something that isn't happening now, I know that I'm being possessed and I'm basically drifting away from the truth of who I really am. And I would argue that it's almost impossible to live in the truth of who you are 100% of the time because the same way the mind functions naturally and our body digests naturally and our body has these functions, our ego is something we cannot get rid of and our ego survives by identifying with the mind. That is the food it lives off of and if there's one thing that I've learned is trying to get rid of your ego or believing that you can exist in this world without having one is false. So it's about making peace with the fact that you're going to worry about the future at times, you're going to carry the past within you at times or dwell on something that happened. But each opportunity that I have to come back to the truth, every moment that I'm aware of what's happening and I come back to the truth, enhances and maximizes my ability to experience peace and joy and love and presence and all of those positive states.
Before we continue this podcast episode, I just wanted to stop and make sure that everyone who's listening to this knows that I'm going to be hosting an end of the year workshop for how I set my New Year's resolutions up last year that helped me achieve almost every single one of them in 2022. I truly believe that when you set goals from an intentional place that's really, really aligned with your deepest truth, all you have to do after that is make sure that you are in alignment with your truth so that you can fulfill them. In this 90-minute workshop on December 30th at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be teaching the method for how I create my New Year's resolutions as I do them myself for 2023 and teach you guys how I tie them each to an intention and how I live from that place in order to set myself up for success. This workshop is only $95 and there are limited spots available. If you feel called to join, click the link below in the podcast description or the link in my bio and sign up now. Now let's get back to the episode. So continuing this chapter, the next section is titled The Birth of Emotion. In addition to the movement of thought, although not entirely separate from it, there is another dimension to the ego, emotion. This is not to say that all thinking and all emotion are of the ego. They turn into ego only when you identify with them and they take you over completely. That is to say, when they become, quote unquote, I. The physical organism, your body, has its own intelligence, as does the organism of every other life form. And that intelligence reacts to what your mind is saying. It reacts to your thoughts. So emotion is the body's reaction to your mind. That simple, simple sentence is so, so profound if you think about it. Because after I read this and I was feeling super anxious, I asked myself, what is the thought that I can trace back to this feeling? If my feelings are actually a reaction to my mind, what were the thoughts that created these feelings? I'll continue. He goes on to describe how the body's intelligence is actually an inseparable part of universal intelligence. How our organs and our oxygen and the way that we process food, our heartbeat, the circulation of our blood, the way our body protects itself from invaders and germs and viruses, and the way messages are sent to the brain and decoded there and resembled throughout the body. And all of these functions of the body are coordinated perfectly with the intelligence of nature. I love the way he says this. He says, you do not run your body. The intelligence does. It is also in charge of the organism's responses to its environment. So there's this universal intelligence of nature that is allowing your body to function. I think we all know this. It's not you circulating your blood. You don't do anything to control your lungs. You don't do anything to move the blood throughout your body. It's just not you who's doing it. As a living, breathing thing, the same way a flower goes from being a little seed into a stem, into a leaf, into a flower, the same way that trees grow and water flows and the same way that the earth revolves around the sun, that same intelligence is flowing through you and allowing you to basically exist and be alive in your body. He says, this is true for any life form. It is the same intelligence that brought the plant into physical form and then manifests as the flower that comes out of the plant. The flower that opens its petals in the morning to receive the rays of the sun and closes them at night. It is the same intelligence that manifests as Gaia, the complex living being that is our planet Earth. This intelligence gives rise to instinctive reactions of the organisms to any threat or challenge. It produces responses in animals that appear to be akin to human emotions. 
anger, fear, pleasure. These instinctive responses could be considered primordial forms of emotion. In certain situations, human beings experience instinctive responses in the same way that animals do. In the face of danger, when the survival of the organism is being threatened, our heart beats faster, muscles contract, breathing becomes rapid in preparation for fight or flight. Primordial fear. When being cornered, a sudden flare-up of intense energy gives strength to the body that it didn't have before. Primordial anger. These instinctive responses appear akin to emotions, but are not emotions in the true sense of the word. The fundamental difference between an instinctive response and an emotion is this. And I highlighted this. Listen carefully. An instinctive response is the body's direct response to some external situation. Right? Like he said, if there's fear, if there's danger, if there's someone who's cornering you, if there's something that's happening and we respond to something external instinctively, that's different. An emotion, on the other hand, is the body's response to a thought. Indirectly, an emotion can also be a response to an actual situation or event, but it will be a response to the event seen through the filter of mental interpretation, the filter of thought, that is to say, through the mental concepts of good and bad, like and dislike, me and mine. For example, it is likely that you wouldn't feel any emotion when you're told that someone else's car has been stolen. But when it is your car, you will probably feel upset. It is amazing how much emotion a little concept like my can create. Although the body is very intelligent, it cannot tell the difference between an actual situation and a thought. It reacts to every thought as if it were reality. It doesn't know it is just a thought. To the body, a worrisome, fearful thought means I am in danger, and it responds accordingly. Even though you may be lying in a warm and comfortable bed at night, the heart will beat faster, the muscles will contract, your breathing becomes rapid. There is a buildup of energy, but since the danger is only a mental fiction, the energy has no outlet. Part of that energy is fed back to the mind and generates even more anxious thought. The rest of the energy turns toxic and interferes with the harmonious functioning of the body. In so many books and in so many things we hear today and in so many podcasts on spirituality or in wellness, we hear about how suppressed emotions, how negative emotions can lead to illness, can lead to weight gain and manifest in all these different ways in the body and in the mind through mental and physical illnesses. And this is exactly what he's trying to say. That there are two different ways we experience a quote-unquote emotion. One is an instinctive response to something outside of us that is part of our body's intelligence. Where there's danger, we feel fear. Where someone is pressing us, we feel angry. Where something is happening that's unjust, we feel anger. But that's an instinctive response. And his definition of an emotion is the response to a thought. Or indirectly, a thought about something that's happening outside of us. So let's say someone does something that we think is bad and we consider it bad, but objectively it's not good or bad. My thought and the way I'm thinking about this situation through the lens of my judgment as this is something bad. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say your flight is canceled and your mind labels this as bad. 
So it is signaling to the body that you are unhappy and then that manifests as an emotion in the body. You feel more angry or you feel anxious or you feel upset. But objectively, the fact that your flight is delayed or your flight is canceled in reality is not good or bad. It just is. You're not in danger. Nothing is going to physically happen to you. Everything can go on. You are perfectly fine. You are in one piece. Everything is okay. So this external situation through the lens of your own judgment, your mental judgment, now creates the emotion of anger or frustration. Now what he's saying is that because there isn't a real situation, that energy that is now built up into your body either goes back into the mind and feeds the mind and creates more anger and more frustration or more anxiety, which can spiral into an anxiety attack or a panic attack or being really triggered by your anger and that energy goes back into the body and manifests in illness or in disease or in physical pain. The last part of this chapter I'm going to read is from Emotions and the Ego. I'm going to read some of my favorite quotes from it because it's a bit longer. And that is where we're going to end today after this part. But you need to understand this part before I move into the next part, which describes what he hasn't introduced yet what the pain body is, and how it affects all areas of our life. So in the beginning of this section, Emotions and the Ego, he says, The ego is not only the unobserved mind, the voice in the head that pretends to be you, but also the unobserved emotions that are your body's reaction to what the voice in the head is saying. The voice in the head tells a story that the body believes in and reacts to. Those reactions are the emotions. The emotions, in turn, feed energy back to the thoughts that created the emotion in the first place. This is the vicious cycle between your unexamined thoughts and emotions, giving rise to your emotional thinking and your emotional story making. He goes on to say that we all have these unconscious assumptions in our mind that actually end up creating our reality. For example, nobody respects and appreciates me, or I need to fight to survive or there is never enough money. Life always lets you down. I don't deserve abundance. I don't deserve love. Unconscious assumptions create emotions in the body, which in turn generate mind activity and or instant reactions. And in this way, they create your personal reality. The voice of your ego is continuously disrupting your body's natural state of well-being. Almost every human being is under a great deal of strain and stress, not because it is threatened by some external factor, but from within the mind. What is a negative emotion? An emotion that is toxic to the body and interferes with its balance and harmonious functioning. Fear, anxiety, anger, bearing a grudge, sadness, hatred, or intense dislike, jealousy, envy, all disrupt the energy flow through the body, affect the heart, the immune system, digestion, production of hormones, and so on. Even mainstream medicine, although it knows very little about how the ego operates yet, is beginning to recognize the connection between negative emotional states and physical disease. An emotion that does harm to the body also infects the people you come into contact with indirectly through a process of chain reaction, countless others you never meet. There is a generic term for all of these negative emotions, unhappiness. So do positive emotions then have the opposite effect on the physical body? Do they strengthen the immune system, invigorate and heal the body? They do indeed. But we need to differentiate between positive emotions that are ego-generated and deeper emotions that emanate from your natural state of connectedness with being. 
Positive emotions generated by the ego already contain within themselves their opposite into which they can quickly turn. Here are some examples. What the ego calls love is possessiveness, an addictive clinging that can turn into hate within a second. Anticipation about an upcoming event, which is the ego's overvaluation of future, easily turns into the opposite, letdown or disappointment, when the event is over or doesn't fulfill the ego's expectations. Praise and recognition make you feel alive and happy one day, being criticized or ignored, making you dejected and unhappy the next. The pleasure of a wild party turns into bleakness and hangover the next morning. There is not good without bad, no high without low. Ego-generated emotions are derived from the mind's identification with external factors, which are, of course, all unstable and liable to change at any moment. Okay, I said a lot here, so I want to try to break what I just said down simply. And I am in no way underestimating your ability to understand what I said as I read it, but it's just that even while I'm reading this book, I have to reread some sentences like four or five times before they actually sink in. And I've just read this chapter so, so many times and have listened to him talk about it. So I want to help you understand it on a deeper level. So what he's saying is that there's a vicious cycle between the fact that when we're not aware of our thoughts, we think that our thoughts are reality. When our mind is labeling things as good or bad, right or wrong, favorable and unfavorable, and we're not aware of the true nature of our mind, that it's not us, it is signaling to the body that we are unhappy or we're in danger or we're not safe. And that gives birth to negative emotions. Those negative emotions don't have an actual outlet because the threat isn't real and the problem isn't really there. So it feeds back into the mind and then we have this cycle and we start to create stories about people and life around us and things start to get a little bit chaotic. Like I said before, he actually ends up saying this in the chapter. I forgot that he says this. So I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it, but he's saying that these negative emotions are what interfere with our body's harmonious functioning and balance. And feelings like fear and anxiety and anger and dislike and jealousy and envy manifest and disrupt the natural flow of our body's functioning through our production of hormones and our digestion and all these things that he's saying that we also hear today that is becoming more popular in modern medicine to see the mind-body connection. Now, the last part is what I really wanted to break down for you guys, that he says, well, if negative emotions and negative thoughts can manifest into illness and weaken our immune system and, and disrupt that natural flow, what about positive thoughts? Can they do the opposite? And he said, yes. However, the positive thoughts cannot be ego-generated positive thoughts. And what does that mean? Positive thoughts that are stemmed from the mind look like, I cannot wait for my vacation and I'm so excited for that, so I feel happy. Positive thoughts are, wow, I got 10,000 more followers on Instagram, so I feel so much better about myself. Positive thoughts are, someone wants me and likes me, so I feel lovable and worthy. Those are not rooted in truth. And he says that the way you know is basically when a positive thought is rooted in something that can very easily flip on its head. If you lost 20,000 followers, if you would feel less happy, that means that it was coming from the ego. If you're excited about an event, if that event goes bad or that event gets canceled or it rains on your wedding day, if it ruins your mood, then that was rooted in your ego. So I'll say that last sentence that I said where he said, 
Ego-generated emotions are derived from the mind's identification with external factors, which are, of course, all unstable and liable to change at any moment. If you're happy about losing weight, that might be stable, but it could change in any moment, and therefore it's not coming from a good place. It's this idea that you are feeling better because of something happening outside of you that you think increases your value and the quality of your life. In the last part of this paragraph, he says, the deeper emotions are not really emotions at all, but they're states of being. Emotions exist within the realm of opposites. States of being can be obscured, but they have no opposite. They emanate from within you as love, joy, peace that are aspects of your true nature. And I think to add to that, I would say those states of being are always available to us. They are not conditional. They are not dependent on things going well outside of us or how we look or what job we have or anything external. They are inner states of being that are available to us in every present moment. And in every moment that we are aware of the mind and its functioning and not identifying with the mind. The reason I wanted to read from A New Earth on my podcast but also hesitated to do so is because I do understand that it can be very dense or it can be very heavy at first because the level of Eckhart Tolle's consciousness is, in my opinion, a miracle and I am mind blown by how many times I can reread something and learn something new and relearn something and understand it more deeply. So if this didn't make sense the first time you heard this episode but some part of you feels like it's what you need to hear or there is truth in it that it is awakening within you, I recommend listening to it again. Oprah and Eckhart Tolle have a podcast series where they break down each chapter of A New Earth. They don't really discuss the chapters in detail, but I've listened to the episode on the pain body probably like six or seven times now, including today. And every time I listen to it, it's like the first time I've listened to it. I think that is what makes this book so special and so valuable that it is really a work of art. And I believe it's just a product of someone who has tapped into a level of consciousness that most human beings will probably never experience in their lifetime. I hope this episode helped you gain more awareness of what your mind is and what your emotions are and how the two are connected so that we can then move on to what the pain body is and how it's affecting your relationships and how it feeds off of things like negative stories and drama and gossip and how it provokes conflicts with people around you and causes drama in your relationships because it is important to understand these parts before you can fully understand what he describes next. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please screenshot it, share it on your story, tag me. A lot of people have been sharing on their story, but they don't tag me, so I don't see it. And I love to see it, so please tag me. If you haven't already, please rate the podcast. And I'm currently working on an exciting little offering for ending the year and setting you up for the new year. So stay tuned for that because as always, there will be limited spots because I like to keep it relatively intimate. Please remember that the point of all of this is just to become a little bit more aware about the truth of who we are, not to judge ourselves on where we're at in our journey, not to try to force ourselves to rise above these impulses and the nature of who we are. Like Eckhart Tolle says, awareness is the greatest agent for change. So I hope that you have more awareness for the next week and I will be back next week. Thank you so much. I love you guys.